We're looking at Hosea 8 today, but we have to understand every chapter in Hosea in the context of chapters 1 to 3. And when we looked at Hosea 1, I explained that it's an amazing story here in Hosea, that it's the story of the relationship between a prostitute, Gomer, and a prophet of God, Hosea. And he really loves her. He loves her to bits. And because that love is so great that he has for her, and she is so awful to him, she is not only a prostitute, she's sexually addicted, going off with different men, getting pregnant by other men and then trying to kid him that the kids are actually his and he says no lo ami this is not mine not my people and he keeps pleading with her to return to him and then he gets angry with her and talks about punishing her for her adultery stripping her naked and stoning her which he could do under the law and then he talks about different plans that he has to bring her back to him and his fantasy his dream of her being totally faithful to him and the, the whole story is very passionate and this is all a a lived out real life uh, explanation to us of the love of God and the passion of God towards Israel his people and the the trauma that he himself suffers that was reflected really in the in the sufferings of Hosea and after chapter 3 the actual information about the relationship between Hosea and Gomer disappears and what you have is an explanation of the the feelings of God towards Israel. But most of these verses in chapter 8, and in fact in in the whole of Hosea, are alluding back to the situation between Hosea and Gomer. And you can reason back to some degree from the feelings of God towards Israel and his experience with Israel to what was going on in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Now that's why almost... As I say in every verse, there is the use of language which is appropriate to marital breakup, stress in relationship, etc. Because the relationship of God with Israel is based around the, uh, or is reflected in, the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. So, here in verse 1, there's an appeal by God Uh, through Hosea to Israel to repent, set the trumpet to your mouth. This is very much the language of Isaiah 58 verse 1, Ezekiel 33 3, where the prophets uh, send out a trumpet call to Israel to repent. And he says, verse 1, um, that this is because they have transgressed or broken my covenant. So, God's appeal to Israel was based around Hosea's many appeals to Gomer to come back to him. And his warning her of what he is thinking of doing to her, of having her stripped naked and punished as an adulteress, which he could do under the law. And I made the point when we looked in Hosea chapter 1 that really the love of God and the wrath of God are related. And you see that in the feelings of Hosea, because he loves her so much, that is why he is not indifferent to her unfaithfulness. And that's why his anger comes out with her at times, very strongly. So, Israel transgressed my covenant. Now, back with Hosea and Gomer, Gomer transgressed or broke the marital covenant by committing adultery in the way that she did. Now, you see here that there is a difference between transgressing the covenant and trespassing, crossing over the line uh, of God's law. Now, that 
fact, it shows that there is a slight difference between transgressing the covenant and trespassing against the law. Now, I'm not saying that trespassing against God's law is neither here nor there, but what I am saying is that I think there's a difference between sin, as in one-off individual failure, and breaking covenant. We are in covenant relationship with God. And what that means is that he looks at us as if we are in Christ. He looks at us as if we have the status of being a brother or sister in Christ, covered by his righteousness in the covenant that was made to Abraham, the new covenant of grace and of salvation. And within that covenant relationship, it is possible to fail to transgress the, the law, and yet you are still within the covenant. So it's not as if we sin and then we're sort of we're out with God for five minutes or five days or five years until we repent of that specific failure. No, that, that is not right. And a lot of people worry terribly about that, feeling that they're sort of coming in and out all the time of relationship with God because of their sin. That's not the case. And as I say, I'm not minimizing sin in any sense. But the issue is to remain in covenant relationship with God because it is only by breaking the covenant that we will end up finally separated from God. Okay, verse 3, Israel has cast off that which is good. <clears throat> this is really like Gomer throwing off her relationship with Hosea, who was such the, the good, loving husband, and going off with all these dumb guys, as it were, that she'd met in the casino kind of thing, um, talking about love when she had no idea what love was. Now, <clears throat> verse 2, they shall cry unto me, my God, we know you. In other words, in the time of Israel's trouble, they were like, oh God, my, my God, we, we know you. We, Israel, know you. The RV says. And back with the Hosea Goma thing, this is Goma when she's got problems. Oh, Hosea, like you're my master, you're my lord, you're my, my husband. And the tragedy is that we tend to do this, that we turn to God in times of need. We turn to God very intensely when we need him. But of course, the real litmus test of a relationship is how you feel to God when the pressure's not on, when you're lying awake at night, going to sleep, when you're sitting on transport, etc. Now, this then is, <clears throat> is the essence of it all. Verse 1 says that the eagle is going to come in judgment against the house of the Lord, which presumably is the temple. Now, that was in Judah the two-tribe kingdom, not in Israel, the ten-tribe kingdom. Now, it's a theme of Hosea that Israel and Judah were jointly guilty. So often, the ten tribes and the two tribes are kind of placed in, in parallel. You have this in verse 14 uh, of chapter 8. Israel has forgotten his maker, and Judah has multiplied fenced cities. Very often, this happens. And yet... And yet, in chapter 4, verse 15, God says, <clears throat> Though you, Israel, the ten tribes, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and come not you up, that's Judah, unto Gilgal, neither go you up to Beth-Avon, as Israel did. So then, <clears throat> in one sense, God sees Judah as innocent, and Israel as, as guilty. And yet, in other places, as for example here in chapter 8, 
Israel and Judah are bracketed together as being equally guilty. Now, this is the kind of contradiction that you see very often within Hosea. And it's not a contradiction in God, which the, the, sort of the, the cynics would say, oh yeah, the Bible contradicts itself. It's, it, it's not that at all, but it is on a surface level a, a contradiction. But I think it's simply reflecting the very real pain that God experiences with his people and how this leads him to having uh, very different emotions. One minute he sees Judah as innocent, the next he recognizes she's just as bad as, as Israel, the ten tribes. Now this is what we would expect from a God passionately in love, from a God unashamed to express his feeling. Now this is really how God feels to you and me when we fail. There is the very real wrath of God against us. And yet, there is also this imputing of righteousness to us, whereby he sees us as if we're innocent. Now in verse 4, we have a difficult verse. <clears throat> they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not, or I didn't uh, agree with this. I think this is talking about uh, the, the ten tribes and how they had um, different kings, which of course were not from the family of David. Because in verse 3, the context is Israel, the ten tribes. They, that is Israel, have set up kings, but, but not by me. And yet was it really so that God did not agree with the kings of Israel? Well, when the kingdom first divided, <clears throat> it was God's prophet Ahijah who told Jeroboam to rule over the ten tribes. That's First Kings 11.30. And there's another incident later on in the ten tribes' uh, history when Elisha, another prophet of God, announces that Jehu is to be king over Israel. That's in 2 Kings 9. So why then does God, as it were, find fault with them having a system of kings when he had, it seems, allowed this and even announced who was going to be king? It's a similar situation to what we saw in chapter 1, where I noted all the times that God talks about Jezreel, and how he condemns Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Uh, Jezreel, Jehu, had killed the house of Ahab in obedience to God telling him to do so. But now God finds fault with that. Why is that? Well, God confirms people in a downward spiritual spiral if they want to go that way. Like Israel wanted a king, so God gave them Saul, knowing it would not be to their blessing. So he gave Israel kings, the ten tribes, but to confirm them in their, in their evil path. And God is like that. He waits to confirm us, either up in the upward spiral, by what I would call the Holy Spirit, or in a downward spiral, by the evil spirit from the Lord, as happened in the life of Saul. So Jehu's motives for killing the house of Ahab at Jezreel were wrong. And in Hosea 1, God says that he condemns Jehu for doing that, even though he actually told Jehu to do it. And I think you've got the same here with God's criticism of Israel for having kings, not by him, when in a sense he had given them those kings. As I say, the prophets Ahijah and Elisha uh, gave the ten tribes, their, their kings. So God is now looking at Israel with hypersensitivity. 
reflecting about all their past unfaithfulness to him, their past bad motives during the period of his relationship with them. This is what happens in a falling out of love, that the innocent or the aggrieved party tends to look, at, look back at the, the history with the other party and hyper-analyzes motives and discerns the depth of the other person's failure, the extent of their unfaithfulness, the, the sort of poorness of their motivations in appearing to love uh, that person. And God is going through the same here. And that's a scary thing, that God could look with hypersensitivity at the failures of his people. And I would say that this is what happens when people fall out of love. And it's said, actually, in verse 13 of chapter 8, Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. This is exactly how Hosea felt towards Gomer. His love for her was related to the extent of anger that he felt when she abused that love, and he looked back at all her failings and his passions were aroused. Uh, and that this is normal when relationships come under stress, or when there is a falling out of love, an unlovelying uh, of a relationship. This is typical. We see this in human relationships all the time. The people live together, and then, okay, there's a, a time comes when it appears that the relationship's broken, <clears throat> and the offended party remembers all the iniquity, all the failure, as it were, all the bad motives of the other person. And God does the same. Now, this God with whom we are in love, with whom we are in relationship, you know, he, he's not just some kind person who just lavishes a totally unconditional love and kind of shrugs and turns a blind eye at our adultery, at our unfaithfulness. Because, you know, don't get it wrong, our, our running to this world is unfaithfulness. It is nothing less than unfaithfulness to the most loving God and Lord Jesus that, that we could possibly imagine. And as we survey the cross, one is, of course, under that very deep impression. And as I say, the, the huge level of God's love to us inevitably means that he is going to have these other feelings as well, if and when we abuse that love. Now, that, that is not to say that we fear God and think, oh, I better keep on the right side of him. Rather, we are to rejoice in his love and remain in that covenant relationship. And the simple act of breaking bread uh, shows that we take the cup of the covenant, that we reaffirm that relationship with him. Verse 5, God says, How long will it be before they attain to innocency? How long? Now that's a cry typically associated with God's impatient people who are longing for the establishment of the kingdom. How long, O Lord? But here we find it, as it were, on the lips of God, longing for the time when his people will be in free relationship with him and when we shall be fully faithful to him. So don't think that it's us on our end who are sort of longing, how long, O Lord, for the Lord Jesus to come back and for God to act in this world and to finally redeem us. Actually, those feelings are shared by him. How long is actually, as it were, put here on, as it were, on the lips of God. 
Your calf disgusts, O Samaria. My wrath is kindled against them. This is still in verse 5. How long will they be incapable of purity or innocency? Now, purity, innocence, this is again marital language. Same word in Jeremiah 2.35, where Israel falsely plead to God when she's accused of adultery, I am innocent, I am pure. When actually she was not. And, you know, this is Goma, wide-eyed and innocent, making the same claim to Hosea. Me, unfaithful? Of course not. And is that us? Is that you? Is that me? Wide-eyed and innocent? Me? Commit adultery against you, Lord? Of course not. But day by day, we are strongly tempted to do that. And let's not minimize human sin. Let's not minimize the wrath of God. Because by doing so, you minimize the love of God. And of course, let us not minimize the love of God. What I'm saying is what what you see here in this uh, unique window, really, into God's passion, into his feelings, is that that huge desire for us that he has is such that, inevitably, there is another side. That if that love is spurned, if that love is unrequited, as it were, by our refusal, to, to respond and by our unfaithfulness then it's not that God just shrugs and says oh yeah well they didn't want my love I'll go love someone else love in, in this uh, sense is not like that that ah oh, she doesn't want me he doesn't want me oh yeah I'll just go find someone else no you want that person and you want no one else and this is the nature of God's love for us verse 7 they have sown the wind, or they sow the wind. And again, sow here, this is again marital language. It's the same word, Leviticus 12, verse 2, translated about a woman conceiving seed. In the trial of jealousy, Numbers 5:28, the guilty woman found guilty of adultery would be punished by being unable to conceive seed, or to sow. So the idea here is of conceiving without bringing forth fruit. And that is a similar idea, really, in the rest here of, of verse 7. He has no standing corn. The blade shall yield no flower. So the idea is of not bringing forth fruit. Because she was just sowing, conceiving the wind. Now... In the Goma uh, context, I wonder if Goma actually became barren. Chapter 9, verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Now, it seems to me that Goma, by her, her lifestyle of, of sexual abandon, really, would have ended up ultimately barren. This is a typical result of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, etc. Now, for a woman to be barren was the ultimate turn-off, if you like, to the Hebrew male. And yet, for all this, God had this senseless love for Israel, that he wanted this beat-up, barren prostitute, now who, who had abused him for so long, to still come back to him. And this, I think, was reflected in the love of, God, uh, the love of Hosea for Gomer. She had had children, but not for Hosea, not by Hosea. Lo Ami, you are not my people. And ultimately then she did not bring forth fruit to God because she sowed the wind. 
like a wheat plant that has got no flower within it. And I think this is true, really, of the fruit of Israel as a nation. This, the, the Jewish people have apparently conceived a lot in art and music, invention, ingenuity, business, etc. But it has not been fruit for their God. Now, is this relevant to us? It seems to me that the life of pursuing careers, whether or not you make it or not, is not what I'm saying, the life of pursuing careers and of just petty self-indulgence seems to me likewise a sowing of the wind, a bearing of fruit to someone other than God and the Lord Jesus, at very best a conception of something that can never really come to term in spiritual fruit for God. Now, it's not just that if you, if you waste your life just bumming around, just sowing, conceiving the wind and never bringing forth fruit spiritually for God, it's not just that, well, you've got nothing to show for it when you get, get to old, old age. Let's not forget what he says here. They sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. This is of condemnation. Now, we need to really ask ourselves whether it is really true, as is so often said, that, well, actually, by doing your career, by building up your bigger apartment, bigger house, bigger car, uh, nicer life situation, I'm doing this for people. I'm doing this for God, not for myself. Because, you know... Pretty well everyone I meet who's uh, got any sort of decent amount of money or career or whatever, even people who are not particularly uh, interested in, in, in Christianity in a serious sense, will say, oh, you know, it's all nonsense, I don't do it for myself. It's all rubbish, I, I don't do it for myself. Uh, I do it for others. Now, look, come on, who's kidding who? This is not the case. This is simply self-justification. Now, in the end, what is fruit to God? Fruit to God is in character, of course, the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, and patience, etc. But all those fruits of the Spirit are not simply internal attributes. By their nature, they are related to our, our actions towards other people. And the idea, the idea of bringing forth fruit is used in the New Testament and a few places in the Old Testament that I can see in the context of bringing other people into God's family. This is why Jesus died, Isaiah 53, in one sense as a dry tree without, uh, without children and yet in order to bring forth fruit under God and that huge fruit that, that he brought forth when he rose from the dead was in terms of persons, of transformed lives. Now this, I suggest, is the fruit that we are to bring forth, both in ourselves and in others. Not necessarily simply in terms of evangelization, evangelizing the, uh, the, the non-Christians to Christ, although that's certainly part of it, but in, in helping people, those who have already committed themselves to Christ, to spirituality. And I suggest we don't do that by building up our own uh, wealth and our own good life, uh, etc. You don't need an expensive house and nice cars and, uh, and flash holidays and expensive cappuccino coffees, etc. to do that. You simply don't. That, that's, a, that's a myth. So the question is, are we sowing the wind? And of course we live in a world that 
will increasingly be uh, structured around these things. And yet it also seems to me a world that is increasingly empty-headed, that is increasingly the wind. And we can conceive the wind by sitting around on your computer all day long, talking about food, all this kind of sort of peripheral stuff. And that's the end of your life. Your life's gone before you know. So then, if you, if you sow the wind, it's not just that you've got nothing to show at the end of your days. You reap the whirlwind. God says, verse 12, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. I have written to him, Hosea appealed with tears and passion to Goma, and God's word is written to us. It is his direct appeal to us. This is the unique thing about the Bible. The Bible history, the, the poetic books, uh, New Testament records, etc., is all God speaking to us. You've got an example of this in chapter 12 of Hosea, verse 4, where he talks about the history of Jacob, uh, and Jacob's repentance, and he comments, and there God spoke with us. God's word appeals directly to us. Hebrews 12.5, his word from the Old Testament speaks to us as to his children. So as Hosea appealed to Gomer, so God's word is his direct appeal to us. This is more than black print on white paper. Verse 13, God says now he will remember their iniquity. I suggested that this is the falling out of love, the, the thinking through all their previous sins, and they shall return to Egypt. Now, scribble in your margin there if, if you wish. Hosea 11 verse 5, they shall not return to Egypt. So that is what I mean by this struggle within God as it was within Hosea over Gomer. You shall return to Egypt. You shall not return to Egypt. Another example, he says in another place, I will love them no more. But then towards the end of Hosea, I will love them freely. So this is the, t the tension and passion within God. So please don't think, if you take nothing more from this than this, please do not think that God is in heaven indifferent to you or me, indifferent to our behavior, looking someplace else, thinking with a yawn, well, yeah, when Jesus comes back, I'll open the books and see how they got on. There is a, a passionate interest that he has. And again, I say, every act of unfaithfulness on our part is, in that sense, a departure from him. Verse 14, finally, Israel has forgotten his maker and builds temples to their idols. And Judah has multiplied fenced cities. So to build temples to idols and to multiply fenced cities are put in parallel. The idea is that any reliance upon human strength, which is what they were doing, building their fenced cities for defense in their own strength rather than trusting in God, this is the same as idol worship. This is the same as Goma being a sexually addicted uh, a prostitute who was so unfaithful to the best, most loving husband you could imagine. Now this is where it does start to cut in pretty, pretty personally to us. Because our tendency is to treat God as an insurance policy. When we've done all that we can humanly, okay, yeah, well, let's pray to God. Let's bring God into it just in case. But the point is, 
If you're building your fence siddits instead of trusting in God, this is the same as building temples to the idols. Now, in the Hosea-Gomer situation, back in chapter 2, we, we saw this, that Gomer turned to other men, to other males, to provide the basic duties of marriage. Hosea 2, verses 5 and 9, lists the three things. Her clothing, now the AV says her flax, but the idea is her clothing, her food, and sex. Now, those three things, clothing, food, and sex, this is what was the husband's duty to provide for his woman, for his wife, and Goma turned to other men for the basic things of, of, of married life. This was the ultimate insult to, the, human, uh, to the, uh, the Hebrew husband. Now, if we turn to human strength, if we're caught up in the spirit of the society in which we live, where human strength and using human uh, strength to resolve life's problems has never perhaps been greater, these ancient words that we're reading here from two and a half thousand years ago, these are a real challenge to us. Because if for our, our daily necessities we are caught up with, with looking immediately to human strength and God is nowhere to be found and God is something that is added on occasionally in our thoughts, uh, just one of many perspectives that we have in, on human life, then we are no less than adulterers and adulteresses. And the tragedy is that it is against the most wonderful and loving God and Lord that there ever could be.